Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us on this uh, interactive virtual CME symposium provided by Evolve Medical Education entitled Understanding Disparities in Retinal Care, How Race, Gender, and Socioeconomic Status Affect Outcomes. My name is Judy Kim. I'm the program chair for this uh, program. I am a professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences in a graduate school of biomedical sciences, as well as director of teleophthalmology and research medical education of Wisconsin um, at Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I am so happy to be uh, joined at this program by good friends who are also experts on this topic. First, let me introduce you to Dr. Adrienne Scott. She is a chief at Belair Wilmer Eye Institute and Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore. Then there's um, world famous Dr. Rishi Singh, who is a president of Cleveland Clinic Martin Hospitals in Stewart, Florida. And he is also a professor of ophthalmology at Cleveland Clinic. There are a number of learning objectives for this tonight's program. This initiative is designed to address and resolve the educational needs through the following educational objectives. First, we'll discuss how race and socioeconomic status impact screening, access to care, and outcomes in retinal diseases. We'll also identify factors within ophthalmology that may be driving health inequities. We'll look at and evaluate data on utilization of standard of care treatments as well as clinical trial enrollment in historically marginalized populations. Finally, we'll develop strategies together to reduce care disparities in historically marginalized patients with retinal diseases. For all of you, in order to obtain the uh, CME credit, after the symposium, proceed by selecting next page button and complete the uh, post-test and evaluation. Please be sure to complete the process until you receive your certificate. Without further ado, then let's get on with the program. I'll start by defining disparity. What do we mean when we talk about health disparity? It's a health difference based on one or more health outcomes that adversely affects defined disadvantaged populations. Health disparities can come from a number of uh, areas. It can be due to race, ethnicity, gender, or sex, as well as disability, where we live, geography, how much we make, income, as well as immigrant status. Here are some NIH, National Eye Institute of Health, um, National Institute of Health designated health disparity populations. These can be divided into racial and ethnic minority groups, including Indians and Alaskan Natives, Asian Americans, Black, African Americans, Hispanics and Latinos, as well as Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders. Health disparities can um, be uh, also due to sexual and gender, uh, um, as well as socioeconomically and disadvantaged populations. Finally, where we live, underserved rural populations can have health disparity. At this point, I will um, hand over to uh, Adrian Scott, who will talk about disparities in retinal diseases. Adrian, take it away. Thank you so much, Judy, and thank you for the opportunity to be with you on this important topic. So health equity is a very important concept and this is the goal for all of us in a state where all people, regardless of race, sex, sexual orientation, disability, socioeconomic status, geography, or other societal constraint, have fair and just access, opportunity, and resources to achieve one's highest potential for health. Unfortunately, there are factors and considered social and political determinants of health that may negatively affect communities of people that ability to lead healthy lives and achieve women's highest health equity. Reviewing additional definitions in these concepts, so there are political determinants of health. What are those things? Those have to do with 
a systemic structuring of relationships, distribution of resources, power administration that operate in ways to mutually reinforce or influence other concepts to shape health equity or exacerbate health inequities. Also, we need to know and understand more about social determinants of health, conditions and environments in which we learn, work, play, worship, and age that affect health, function, and quality of life. Disparities of demographics in eye care are important to help understand uh, health equity. So globally, there are evidence of disparities in eye care that have been linked to region, education, income, sex, and ethnicity. How might these factors will others affect care for diabetic macuodina and diabetic retinopathy in the United States? So we know uh, from the published literature that disparities in adult vision health are present in the United States. We know that vision loss and vision impairment are more common with age. Women, maybe because we live longer, are at greater risk of vision loss than men. And it is well documented that lower socioeconomic status is associated with underutilization of eye care and worse health outcomes in eye care. Diabetes is particularly important and influenced by socioeconomic and educational factors. We know that adults with low socioeconomic factors are disproportionately affected by diabetes. And educational and risk of diabetes exists on a relative gradient with the educate with patients with the least educational status have the highest risk of uh, diabetic eye disease. We know that also that diabetes in the United States is increasing. We can see from these maps of the United States trending from 2004, 2008, and 2016, the increased percentage of individuals affected by diabetes in the United States. And we'll talk a little bit about what does it mean to be underrepresented in a particular population in a particular disease state. We can see the percentage of individuals with diabetes listed here and of note, 16.4% of Black non-Hispanic Americans are affected with diabetes, although in the raw population, these populations uh, comprise only 5.2 million Americans with diabetes. And you can see also the Hispanic population disproportionately representing uh, the number of individuals affected with diabetes. So certainly out of proportion to the population numbers in, in, the, uh, in the United States. What are the factors for diabetic eye disease? So diabetic retinopathy disproportionately affects black Americans more than white Americans. The prevalence of diabetic macular edema in black Americans is three times greater than white Americans. And race tends to be more of a factor even than hemoglobin A1C levels in determine, de determining development and incidence of diabetic macular edema. So this is a complex topic, and in actuality, the natural history of diabetic macular edema depends on multiple interrelated factors. Uh, we'll also talk about how ophthalmology interventions, including ophthalmic screening, need for treatments such as antivascular endothelial growth factor, um, are balanced with the proportion of Americans affected by diabetes, also environmental factors, healthcare access, and the overall disease burden that contribute to uh, everyone having a different incidence and different ability to achieve their best health equity. Thank you, Adrian. That was wonderful. Uh, before we move on, let me ask you one question. You know, when we um, um, are looking for solutions to problems, we have to define the problem and also may need to get to the root cause of the problem. So Adrian, let me ask you, you know, we know that uh, uh, non-whites have higher of incidence of diabetes. Is it mostly socioeconomic or what other, or what are some of the important factors that uh, causes uh, non-whites to have more diabetes and then therefore diabetic retinopathy? Thanks for the question, Judy. It's a very complex topic with multiple factors contributing. So there's a higher uh, rate of insulin resistance in, uh, in Black populations and Hispanic populations in the United States. Some genetic component as well is at play, but going back to these social determinants and political determinants of health, certainly that influences health, health access, do I have a Whole Foods in your neighborhood as opposed to you know, a Popeye's chicken? How much do you have to travel to get healthy food? Um, body mass index, unfortunately, is also affected um, 
disproportionately in the United States. So populations such as Black and Hispanic populations tend to have higher body mass index, which might also harken back to lack of resources or the distance that one has to travel for resources such as healthy food, affordable food, those types of things, diet choices. So it's a very complex interplay of these factors that I think do play a role. Thank you. I, I do agree. It's very complex and uh, we'll you know, continue to chip at it little by little. Um, next, uh, I'm happy to uh, pass this on to uh, Rishi Singh, who will talk about real world evidence. Rishi. Thank you, Judy. So Adrian set up this talk very nicely, and I'm going to talk about some of the real world evidence that has existed in our population on these healthcare disparities. And I've done some of this research work as well as my colleagues across the United States have done this work. And so it's really a pleasure to present some of the data that we've been able to collect for the past two years. So um, we, uh, this is a study that was done a, a while ago of, of US cohort populations, uh, looking at the impact of race on short-term treatment response. And in this case, it looked at bevacizumab in this diabetic macrodema population. And they found that essentially um, the percentage of patients experienced an improvement with one injection was much lower in the uh, black population than it was in the white population. You can see that by 27% versus 50%. And they defined um, visual acuity improvement as a two-line gain in vision in this case for that uh, population that was studied in the real world. And you can see actually after the percentage of patients experienced after three injections, there was an increase obviously in both the Hispanic and white groups, but still the black populations lag behind. And this has uh, led to a lot of different insights. I think Adrian mentioned a few things. Uh, first and foremost, we see that more black individuals have advanced retinopathy conditions. Sometimes they already develop featureless retinopathy conditions. So they might develop ischemia more often than uh, other individuals might. So there's a variety of different phenotypical things that may explain what these differences are. And for that matter, it also refers to the fact that sometimes there are healthcare disparities access to care, uh, eye providers that are in the community, um, uh, certainly their view on injections and certainly the opportunity to come to appointments may be different for different uh, populations. And again, race may be a equivalent for socioeconomic factors, but still yet um, there is a difference in that in those populations. So we can't, I, I think whenever, uh, first and foremost point I would like to make in this talk is that it's very hard to separate out all of these factors individually because they just have they have a lot of interplay in each other, right? So you have socioeconomic factors, you've got um, racial differences, you've got ethnicity differences between Hispanic and non-Hispanic individuals, and and those and then that also there's access issues to care, and so I think it's very multifactorial. It's sometimes very hard to separate that out. Insurance is another one that obviously differs in these populations too. And so I, I, I want to be cautious to say that this truly is not just a race issue. It's probably many related to these underlying conditions. And um, the differences in visual acuity improvements really between the Hispanic and white populations were not so significant at the time points, differences in those two populations and the CMT reductions were not different amongst the groups as well. So um, what you're seeing essentially is that while the retinopathy or the thickness may be better, in all groups, um, unfortunately, the visions are, are very different from each other. And that's a disconnect, you know, is OCT and vision we see in diabetic populations. So it may be that there's another line, underlying conditions that might explain some of these differences over time. Um, this is another study that we actually did uh, as part of the IRIS registry at Cleveland Clinic. And Nisha Malotra, who is the primary author on this paper, was the genesis of this. She was a medic, uh, medical student and MPH. Uh, candidate during her medical school at Case Western. And she came up with this idea because she looked at our electronic record data and found some of these disparities and said, why don't we ask this in the larger IRIS database? And this is part of a research to prevent blindness grant that we received. And in this group, what we did was looked at uh, six, 60 months. So essentially five years of ongoing therapy for anti-VEGF therapy and looked at seeing what the differences were in both the racial and ethnic groups, as well as for those uh, based upon insurance. And so first and foremost, what you see is that there's differences in the baseline acuity of patients that enter in the study. You can see that uh, in the top graph with an ethnicity and insurance, those with um, uh, Hispanic patients were the most likely to have the worst vision on entry compared to the white individuals or not, I should say non-Hispanic individuals, not white individuals, but non-Hispanic individuals. 
and they had the private insurance, as you can see on the top most portion of that. So very, first and foremost, there's differences in ethnicity seen. And then secondarily, when you look at the differences between races, black and white individuals, because the other populations, Asians were poorly represented in this population. So we just looked at black and white. You can see major differences with regards to both the entry vision. But look at those lanes that you see there. That's an important finding that essentially that there was no difference in the visual acuity um, and crosses over the visual acuity, I should say, uh, in these individual patients, both with race and with ethnicity and with the insurance type. So these are all, I think, um, existing functions of what impacts the patient. And this is the concerning part, right? This is the part that we're trying to overcome, which is that if truly this is a, a racial issue or ethnicity issue or an insurance issue, we have a lot to do here because clearly they don't have the same outcomes, nor do they have the same entry points. So we might be screening them later in time. So again, um, just an important point, I think, to make about this population. And the next slide really dictates a, a lot of the other things we saw, which I think was impressively important as well, which is that if you look at populations, and we could do this by our own study at Cleveland Clinic, where we actually looked at uh, the, the populations in and around Cleveland, Ohio, we could actually take the zip codes and actually go back and look at census data to see the income levels. And what you can see in this case is that if you're at various levels above and below the poverty line, you have higher or lower no-show rates or canceled rates. So the most below the poverty line uh, essentially had the highest rates of canceled appointments and highest rates of no-shows. And as you got uh, three times above the poverty line, again, you had the rate and ability to get the most attending appointments and uh, very few no-shows. Uh, again, makes sense, right? A patients who have uh, good economic status can take off time from work, potentially in their own jobs, which uh, give them FMLA uh, or time away from work for medical reasons otherwise, and they're able to attend these appointments and keep those injections up. On the bottom, you see uh, the number of injections received, again, by poverty line. Again, what a difference you see there between the, uh, the lower and upmost area, about two injections in an entire year, which is fairly significant if you think of real-world populations in general. The average U.S. population gets about two to three, four injections, maybe at most a year. So in the highest category of socioeconomic status, you see that there is about five injections given on average per year. So that might also correlate to some of the differences we saw just a moment ago. Uh, and again, as I said to you, they're multifactorial in nature and, and what we see. Um, and we talked about the baseline vision and the outcome of vision. You know, the baseline visions were different. And, and certainly when you control for baseline differences, if you look at this uh, middle bullet point, essentially there were better outcomes within the white individuals than black individuals during the course of the study. And certainly more injections given the white population versus the black population as well. And these p-values were significant in these studies that were done in Cleveland. And there's data from, the, from abroad too. This is not just a US disease or US situation where there's these socioeconomic and racial and ethnic disparities. Uh, real world evidence suggests this can happen in, in many uh, parts of the world. And this is a study from Singapore. It looked at the link between diabetic chronopathy outcomes and the person's socioeconomic status, education, income, housing type. And what basically found is that in looking at these personal level so if the economic status, the lower income was associated with increased risk of diabetic retinopathy and visual impairment. And in looking at the area level socioeconomic status and not in within a certain region or, or province of Singapore, they're associated with greater incidence of diabetic retinopathy, diabetic progression, and visual impairment uh, in these patient populations. And then finally, uh, what we know also from, from uh, the study that we did uh, with our patients in the IRIS registry that uh, they essentially had um, higher baseline visual acuities in both uh, the private pa patient populations and Medicare compared to Medicaid. So not only do we have all of the things we talked about with regards to ethnicity and race, we also have insurance status, which dictates that a lot, and that's important to determine. So why do we have this sort of difference? Obviously, um, I'm going to touch on some of the insurance differences in a moment, but you know, co-pays are a significant part of medical care these days. And the way that people take on insurances has drastically differenced from uh, the, the CARES Act or the Obamacare um, Act that came out a while ago in which affordable care is allowed for by all, but yet even in the Affordable Care Act, they are certain people that have high deductibles and low deductibles based upon where they are in the insurance cycle. And that can certainly change how these patients perceive or accept care because 
uh, if they're uh, significantly have a large deductible, um, they're willing to necessarily not fill the deductible until, and then once they hit the deductible, many of them are willing to undergo therapy. And if their co-pays are fairly low, they're probably going to be more likely to receive care. And so um, certainly that's a concern. And, and Brian Vanderbeek at University of Pennsylvania kind of studied this a little bit more in detail. And he looked at claims data and this population of new DME patients. And he found that um, in this population of patients, 48% underwent um, the, their examination within uh, 90 days. And, um, and, and within that population, many of them went on to receive treatment, but about half of the only those patient populations wanted to receive treatment. And having any type of copay lowered the odds of receiving any time, a type of treatment. Um, and, and again, uh, he thought he found from at least this study that the insurance plan and having a high deductible were unrelated to initiating therapy, which I thought was interesting. But I think the copay here is a differentiating factor and probably the factor that related the most here in these populations. So uh, we also know that geographic variety can uh, determine treatment patterns. And uh, he and his study kind of characterized some areas in the US which had greater likelihood of receiving anti-VEGF compared to uh, branded anti-VEGF versus non-branded anti-VEGF. That was the Northeast. Um, and and uh, he found that areas in the Southern Midwest had higher odds of receiving any, any anti-VEGF or even focal laser um, than any part of the country. So it seems like the Southern Midwest is doing something right, at least by evidence-based care. And the South Atlantic states where any anti-VEGF was the most likely choice, they're highly unlikely to receive any type of laser. So even within our you know, microcosm of, of our United States, we find that there's differences in treatment patterns. So you can't always take into account, I think some of these other factors I, ta I talked about in a moment ago, because there's certainly multi-factors uh, that play into this and, and have certain a role. Now, um, I, I would add to this that, that making this milieu even more complicated is step therapy. And this is a study that was obviously uh, part of the DRCR net and essentially validated step therapy more or less for the treatment of diabetic macroedema, finding that map as a first option for patients for DME was a reasonable approach. And uh, what, what has transpired since that article and the subsequent editorial is that we have Medicare Advantage programs that are really taking advantage of this and now implementing step therapy as a result of this. And when you look at this, it's really those Medicare Advantage populations to manage really the Part B side of the drugs, which are very expensive to the uh, Medicare population. Um, there are 20 million uh, patients who are currently enrolled in these Medicare Advantage programs, and uh, many haven't implemented this change. And the biggest problem in all of this is first, foremost, uh, the Medicare Advantage plans, a lot of them have extrapolated this data to all disease states, not just diabetes, but to AMD and to RVO and to other areas where they said, yes, you know, we think it's it's perfectly reasonable to start. And, you know, they don't know the difference between DME and RVO and or AMD sometimes. And so that's that's really ours to educate on. I would say if you had to take one point away from today's discussion, hopefully you'll be an advocate for other U.S. retina specialists and general ophthalmologists who are uh, you know, sort of dealing with this in a daily basis. Don't don't accept what they give you as being acceptable because it's in a different disease state. If there's no evidence, please write articles and please write letters to them. And they do respond to most of the letters that are given. And I think the other thing that complicates this is that in protocol AC, there was a real uh, failure defined. There was a def definition that was determined both anatomy and vision. And unfortunately, uh, most of these plans don't include the definition for failure. So it really is up to the investigator to determine what they determine as failure and therefore, as a result, uh, have to implement um, that sort of step therapy in their practice as a result of it. So I think there's a lot to be gained from these studies, albeit, again, you can be an advocate for your own practice and your own environment by making sure that you keep the insurance companies at bay. So uh, we talked about some of these um, uh, failure policies, uh, fail first policies. And I've been an author in some of these studies, which has shown that, you know, if you look at some of the, the data um, from other studies, that your chance of improving vision really was in the first three to six months, especially in DME. And missing that opportunity, either because you were delaying care, because of co-pays, because of uh, non-response to therapy, it does have decent amount of impact at a year and even two years out. Um, the difference in protocol AC is that it's a clinical trial. It's adhered to by the patients. And so 
it's the idealistic scenario. Patients come in every month, get treated every month. It's, it's very different from the real world. And so when you look at these fail first policies and compare it to the real world outcomes, it doesn't look as rosy with regards to its ability to have the same outcome with regards to vision if you have a lower, uh, lower therapy there as well. And again, uh, non-adherence and uh, certainly the clinical and ethical issues are significant uh, when applying this to populations because essentially you're letting clinicians determine some of these um, ethical issues with regards to whether they're uh, truly failing or not failing, or for that matter, responding or not responding therapy. So I think having these policies has been detrimental in some shape and form. In the real world, in the clinical trial setting, it probably works just fine. Uh, but I think in the real world, as and this is strictly my opinion, that it does not have the same effect. So um, I'll, I'll finish with this last slide, which I think is important. And, and this is about loss to follow-up, because we know that follow-up is a big problem. And this actually study was done in, at my alma mater at Boston University in Boston of, of the patient populations there. And, and, and Boston University is a very complicated environment. It's Boston Medical Center, which is the free care hospital for the city. A lot of the private hospitals pay into that in order for them to not absorb those free care patients. And so BU becomes the place where um, many of these patients exist and, and get treated. And certainly loss to follow-up will be the highest in a facility like this because it has the lowest socioeconomic status and highest uh, potential uh, diversity of its population. And this study with Green in, in 2020 uh, looked at patients with proliferative diabetes. So just imagine that's the worst of the worst, the most severest form of diabetes. And yet you, you see a lot of patients lost to follow-up. Well, a lot of that's due to the primary language barrier other than English, age greater than 55, living um, you know, greater than 20 miles from the clinic was a problem and certainly having greater than five medical comorbidities was a problem. So this is just some of the thoughts we have around, again, loss to follow-up and what we're seeing in, in the literature. And certainly in these high-risk populations, especially in the inner city, I'm sure Adrian has some of those in Baltimore and everyone else, but that these are complicated scenarios to deal with sometimes. And so sometimes you have to think about what barriers or safety nets you can put up for preventing people from being lost to follow-up over time. Thank you, Rishi. Uh, those were all excellent, excellent points there. And we'll try to uh, touch on some of them as we go through uh, some of our cases at the end. But um, um, let's move on to how can we make a change uh, about all these things that uh, Rishi and Adrian have talked about? How do we uh, reduce uh, care disparities? So uh, Adrian had already gone over the health equity definition and that we unfortunately have um, social and political determinants of health negatively affecting many communities and their people and the ability to lead healthy lives. I'm going to concentrate this section on clinical trials because clinical trials are uh, where we get our drugs approved. Uh, and these are the drugs that we uh, start using on our patients of all races. Uh, and um, if drugs are not tested in the right population, these drugs may not work on those populations. So let's look at some of these studies that um, and um, discuss them at the end. Uh, this study looked at um, uh, clinical trials for FDA uh, drug approval between years 20, uh, 2000 and 2020 for glaucoma, macular degeneration, and diabetic retinopathy. And among the 31 clinical trials that uh, tested 13 drugs in over 18,000 participants, um, the study found that um, uh, there was an increase uh, and um, Asian and uh, Hispanic Latino patients for AMD over time uh, increased uh, enrollment uh, and also increased in enrollment of Asian patients for diabetic retinopathy as well as Blacks and Hispanics and Latino patients for glaucoma. However, um, the Black patients were um, uh, there were less black population uh, for DR enrollment over time. So the study found that um, significant underrepresentation uh, by disease burden seen in um, uh, uh, compared to NEI and US Census. And the enrollment incidence for these um, trials for the subjects um, ratio is expected to worsen uh, over time, unfortunately, uh, even by year 2050. 
So how um, underrepresented are uh, subject enrollment uh, compared to um, real, real world uh, part participants? So this study uh, looked at uh, racial and ethnic and gender disparities in diabetic macular edema clinical trials uh, in 10 DR clinical research and industry-sponsored uh, DME trials of uh, over 4,000 people compared to IRIS registry database that included uh, over 200,000 uh, persons. And the study found that um, there were definitely more uh, whites um, enrolled in clinical trials compared to uh, the uh, percentage in the uh, IRIS registry data. And uh, there were more male uh, uh, subjects enrolled in the clinical trials compared to the uh, total participants and percentage in the IRIS registry data. Um, so if we are not looking at the same um, uh, type of population, the clinical trial results uh, may not be uh, widely applicable. This is another uh, study that looked at diabetic macular edema and retinal vein occlusion trials between 2004 and 2020, compared with the US census data of 2010. Of the 23 trials included, uh, 15 being diabetic macular edema study and eight being for RVO. Uh, this study also found that white uh, patients uh, were more frequently overrepresented and Hispanic study participants uh, were most frequently underrepresented. So in, for equality's sake, we need to look at the uh, subject uh, di uh, distribution in our clinical trials. This is another study that looked at, um, at race and ethnic representation in US clinical trials. This one is for diabetic macular edema and diabetic retinopathy uh, trials between 2001 and 2020. 25 clinical trials, both uh, NIH sponsored and industry sponsored. This study found that black patients were underrepresented by threefold in NIH trials and 4.5-fold in a diabetic macular edema uh, trials sponsored by the industry. Also, industry-funded diabetic retinopathy trials had 2.1-fold disparity compared to disease burden. So we need to enroll more underrepresented minorities in our clinical trials. This study, again, um, is uh, uh, looking at health uh, care disparity in the anti-VEGF therapies for diabetic macular edema in the United States. This was a retrospective analysis of iris registry data, looking at anti-VEGF therapy for diabetic macular edema between the years 2012 and 2020. Uh, just as um, uh, Rishi had alluded to um, um, earlier, patients who are on Medicare and private insurance presented with higher baseline visual acuity. Also, Blacks and Hispanic patients presented with worse baseline diabetic retinopathy severity. So uh, these patients, um, both based on insurance as well as race, um, they're showing up to us retina specialists and ophthalmologists at a worse stage uh, compared to uh, better insured uh, whites. This uh, looked at uh, anti-VEGF treatment for diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema in over 43,000 eyes identified through iris registry again. This study again found that white patients presented with better visual acuity and less severe diabetic retinopathy stage. Even when we control for insurance, remember we talked about insurance and socioeconomic status, well, even when controlling for insurance, as well as the disease, uh, how advanced their diabetes was, as well as visual acuity, when all these things were controlled, the study found that Hispanic patients were more likely to be treated with bevacizumab. And remember, uh, Rishi showed that uh, bevacizumab uh, after one injection doesn't work as well with Hispanic patients compared to uh, whites. 
Also, Medicaid insured patients had significantly smaller gains in visual acuity relative to privately insured patients. So this, uh, disparities uh, exist not only in uh, our subjects, in our clinical trials, but also within ophthalmology itself. Um, there is a huge disparity um, among ophthalmology workforce. For instance, ophthalmology departments around the United States are some of the least diverse departments in medicine. We ranked bottom when number of uh, departments were looked at in terms of race as well as gender. Therefore, we are making recommendations to diversify ophthalmology trainees as well as the workforce, the technicians and so forth. Why? Because study after study have shown that uh, diversity in workforce, diversified physicians improves patient adherence. It improves the trust uh, from the patients. It improves communication as well as patient satisfaction, uh, thus increasing uh, odds of better outcome in improving their visual acuity. So here are some take home points. Vision is important to everyone, right? We have seen that uh, patients say they rather um, die of COVID than to go blind. Um, I have heard that for my patients. And we also know that patients uh, fear blindness as much as the diagnosis of getting cancer. That's why we're talking about this. And vision is important to everyone, every race, every gender. Eye health disparities present among all, are, are present among all ophthalmic subspecialties. It's not just retina, it's glaucoma, it's cataracts, it's everywhere. We need to do better. As for uh, retina, uh, we need to uh, detect the disease earlier uh, because we know that earlier detection and timely treatment are more likely to result in better uh, final visual acuity. So we need to improve screening um, as well. We should consider effects of systemic racism, social determinants of health, implicit as well as explicit biases. And we can do that by better educating ourselves. And congratulations to all of you in the audience because you are taking that step. We should strive for equity in clinical trials. We've seen how uneven these clinical trial subject participants are. We should diversify research teams, plan for recruitment and retention in clinical trials. And finally, we should improve community engagement. All of us should work together. Thank you. We'll now uh, move on to case studies and we'll uh, discuss and review some of the points that we've gone over in a didactic session, um, applied to uh, different cases that each of us will present. I'll start. So this is a, a patient of mine, 58 year old Hispanic a man uh, who has history of diabetes uh, type two and was referred for an eye exam by his new primary care physician because his previous primary care physician did not even address that. So kudos to this primary care physician. His most recent A1C was 12.3% and BMI is 33. Believe it or not, that BMI 33 is actually very common among the uh, subjects that are enrolled in clinical trials for uh, DME and DR. He also has other um, uh, health conditions such as hypertension, uh, which is controlled medication, which is very common among our diabetic patients, right? His last eye examination was three years ago for glasses. And he does not know whether his eyes were dilated or not at the time. And this is also very common. When I ask my patients, you know, uh, at the time of your eye exam, did you have your eyes di uh, dilated? Many of them don't know. And many of them think that just going to get eye examination for glasses constitutes retinal examination for diabetic retinopathy. And we need to educate our primary care physicians as well as our, our patients. Furthermore, 
this patient did not feel that annual eye examination was necessary because he did, had no problem. He's seeing well to do what he needs to do. He can drive, he can work. So why waste time and money to get an eye examination? Well, when we saw him, his vision was 20-25 in the right, 20-60 in the left. Yes, he's driving. Uh, pressure is 15 in both eyes. He had early cataract. But on a dilated fundus examination, he had moderate non-proliferative debit retinopathy in the right eye and severe non-proliferative debit retinopathy with center involving diabetic macular edema in the left eye. So here is uh, optical coherence tomography, um, the map on the top and the B scan on the bottom showing that he does have center involved diabetic macular edema with lots of uh, intraretinal fluid. Um, Rishi, how would you uh, uh, take care of this patient? Yeah. He's sitting in front of your, uh, your, your chair now. Yeah, so thankfully, I think, again, his vision, this is the left eye, which is the- Sure, 2060. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, uh, you know, again, this falls into a population of patients, which I still think protocol T has relevance in this population now. Again, the uh, insurance status really helps me determine whether I can give the branded drug in this case for that. I forgot his insurance status. Judy, do you remember, remind me of what his insurance status was in this? He has medical insurance, but not vision insurance. Okay, uh, but does he have Medicare or does he have a secondary? Do you know what? No, he does not have secondary. Okay, so you know Medicare alone is probably reasonable, and we have copay assistance programs that are widely available. So I probably would start the conversation about. And he's fifty-eight years old. I'm sorry. Oh yeah. Okay, so he does not have it Medicare then in that case. Right. So he have commercial insurance of some sort. So then you'd have to get a prior authorization. I would be forced in this case to start with bevacizumab. Um, and again, protocol AC did give some credence to that. And I would start with bevacizumab in this case and not do the branded drug, um, knowing that I'm gonna file an authorization potentially for the other drug in case I wanted to use it at some point, not right away, but certainly I need to know that I can get it at some point. It's worthwhile, I think, also to do an angiogram. You mentioned that this patient's BMI is high, that his hemoglobin C is not great. Like he's not at all taking care of patients. So I'd like to see an angiogram at baseline just to make sure he doesn't have any peripheral vascular plus peripheral uh, proliferation of any sort to, to indicate he has uh, disease. Yeah, that's a good point, uh, Rishi. If uh, insurance is an issue, if uh, money is an issue, do you what do you do about angiogram? You know, sometimes patients decline certain tests that we recommend <laughs> because they're worried about the uh, uh, the expense. Yeah, so I don't think people necessarily refuse the medical related issues per se, because they don't have much of that though. As you're aware, now we have to provide some um, billing ahead of that of the patient's visit. Um, it, there's a new uh, act that's out that uh, allows for patients to know what exactly we're gonna be charging them prior to their coming in this year. It's a brand new uh, implementation. So I think we're gonna have to figure out how that looks like, but right now they don't really know uh, nor do they ask. Um, and I think it's reasonable to do it uh, and knowing that there are potentially that reimbursement concern. But, you know, an angiogram, you know, if we had to, um, you know, usually it's covered by most medical insurances and we'll also go toward the patient's deductible. And you talked uh, uh, about um, the, uh, the fact that uh, bevacizumab may not uh, work as well uh, for non-white patients after one or even three in, uh, in black patients. Does that come into play? Well, certainly it does. Uh, but again, I think, again, this is uh, real world populations which have this, as I mentioned to you in the studies, it works, seems to work just as fine as everything else, but that's, that's a study. ACU is a study. It requires coordinators, trials, enrollment, things like that, that you have good follow-up on. You don't necessarily have that in everything you do. So I would say it's probably not what I would choose here, uh, but you may be forced to choose so because of the situation you're describing. Right. Yeah, the protocol T of DRCRNet show that um, in patients um, with uh, uh, less than 2040 visual acuity, uh, a flibercept uh, worked best. And then uh, DRCRNet did the protocol AC looking at uh, a possible, you know, a potential um, um, cost saving, as well as uh, whether there any harm by starting with uh, bevacizumab, uh, the less expensive medication, and found that um, at, after two years, um, 
it was equivalent visual acuity wise compared to a, a flibercept. But you pointed an important point. It was clinical trial where they were seen monthly and they had uh, on average 22 visits uh, between 24 months of the study, as well as um, mean of 14 injections, which is a lot greater than what we normally do in the real world. So uh, I have a little concern about whether it would be truly applicable and generalizable. What, what do you think? No, I, I, I totally agree. I think that that's the problem with many of these um, idealistic studies. Uh, that you know, I, I think as much as they can emulate the real world treatment patterns, for example, in, in protocol um, uh, T, we at least had almost as needed PRN treatment for those patients from the study. Now, granted, we don't do that in clinical practice per se, but at least this gives the thoughts around not doing mandatory, you know, six injections in a row or something like that, that we would never do. So I think it has a much better, um, you know, correlation to what we do in real, real, real world clinical practice. Yes, so uh, this patient uh, was started on bevacizumab because of his insurance status and pre-authorization and all that. And then uh, he went on patient access program. Um, so he didn't have to pay for uh, the drug. And um, uh, he actually uh, did quite well uh, following um, treatment and uh, uh, regained visual acuity. And he, uh, unlike some other diseases, uh, diabetic macular edema, if we start the treatment early and are quite uh, persistent at it, um, they can uh, be observed. They don't have to have injections forever and ever. Um, so um, uh, I think this was um, best of all worlds. And um, I I'm glad that his primary care doctor uh, did uh, refer him to an eye care specialist. Great outcome. Yeah. All right. Uh, at this point, I'm going to uh, um, um, move this to next case. And I think that's uh, Rishi's case. Yeah, it is. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so this is actually a gentleman that I saw who was referred to me um, for diabetes for the past seven years. Hemoglobin's he's you know fairly better than the last patient you showed me, but uh, but still has uh, room to be improved. Twenty one millimeters mercury pressure and the uh, dilated examination performed, and the, I was told that the OCT was normal. And um, this is the picture. And so the optometrist saw this patient and said, you know, OCT is normal. I think you're good to go. And what happened was they happened to be in the lane next to me and they came over and showed me this picture and said, what do you think I should do? Does this seem fine for you? And I'd ask maybe Adrian or Judy, do you want to comment on kind of- Yeah, Adrian, thoughts? why don't you comment on it? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And uh, I like ultra wide field imaging quite a lot for a baseline evaluation, um, we know that uh, this person is likely high risk for ischemia, retinal ischemia. Uh, this is the type of individual with severe and PDR, looks like bilaterally, that I would like to get a fluorescent angiogram. I'm not certain if there's any vascularization, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's peripheral ischemia. And uh, we know from um, protocol AA that the peripheral ischemia does predispose to PDR, proliferative diabetic retinopathy development. So likely this person has peripheral retinal ischemia and possibly neovascularization. Yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, this is where ultra wide field imagery becomes very helpful. I think in the past we used to rely on our wonderful technicians scanning the retina doing seven standard fields. And now we have a wide field imaging uh, that shows you clearly this patient has severe NPDR and um, and certainly has that. But you know, again, according to the optometrist, had no amounts of OCT uh, thickness, and so therefore you didn't have DME. And here uh, you can see the follow up, which is that the optometrist recommended a six month follow up. But this patient actually returned back within six weeks with decreased vision in both eyes, and so um, that was sort of the opportunity to screen this patient more. They were seen by optometry, the vision was good, but the pressure was high now, it was 43 and 35. And so I'll just show you what happened next this is where I got involved essentially in this case, where the patient was brought in and, and found to have essentially, you know, peripheral non-perfusion, as you can see here, uh, neovascularization of the disc uh, in the right eye. You can see that really nicely in the top images here for sure. And then on the bottom, you can see that there's uh, some evidence of, of non-perfusion, yet no, no true PDR present. Now, again, no one has put on 
a um, you know a, a, a gonio lens to look at the angle, but certainly this patient has proliferative disease in the right eye and may explain the pressure issues. And so there's lots of different options for this patient with neovascular glaucoma you know, and uh, PDR. You can do penrental laser, you can start with anti-VEGF therapy and defer the penrental laser until you get scheduled appointments. You could start on intraocular pressure drops. And thankfully this patient was started on uh, two IOP meds and bilateral anti-VEGF therapy. Uh, visual QAD remained 2020, IOP was good. Uh, here you can see the effect of uh, a single injection, which was really quite impressive in the left eye. And again, the right eye, single injection. Now, this is not the be-all end-all for this patient. This patient needs, obviously, laser, and the patient underwent subsequent P P PRP after this. But here is a great example where you can see all of those peripheral non-perfusion areas now very clearly on this image that wasn't as visible on the first one because the hemorrhages are gone. But you see those ischemic vessels present, which really means that you have active disease. And here's the OCT, just showing you over a couple of different visits here, uh, you know, over a three-month period of time. Look at the right eye. So even though the right eye initially looked normal by the OCT, when you see patterns on the on-foss image where it looks sort of, you know, uh, scalloped in nature and that you, you really have to look for proliferative disease in these cases because it's a good sign that you have something else going on that's more significant because you have that sort of change there. And that's usually a marker for interretinal ischemia, which again goes along with uh, the idea that you have advancing diabetic disease as well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, you point out uh, important things such as we uh, recently learned that uh, ultra wide field uh, fluorescent angiogram actually can uh, give us some prognosis four years down the line, more non-perfusion, more likely that they will get worse. So I think doing some of these imaging or, um, at baseline will be helpful in uh, managing our patients. Uh, I, I do think he probably had neovascular glaucoma even in the left eye because pressure was high and responded well to anti-VEGF. But um, I do think that you know ultimately uh, both eyes will need uh, panoramic photocoagulation more for durability because otherwise you may have to keep injecting with anti-VEGF. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, Adrian, um, let's uh, have you uh, uh, take away with your case here. Sounds great. Um, this is a case that uh, was shared with me by a colleague who uh, treated the patient earlier, a 37-year-old Black woman, type 2 diabetes, elevated hemoglobin A1c, uh, upwards of 11, uh, had 20-20 vision in both eyes, presented to the retina specialist, and was diagnosed with non-high-risk proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So in this case, close uh, follow-up was advised with a recommended return for three months. The patient returned six months later, was noted to have progression of neovascularization uh, elsewhere in both eyes and was advised for prompt PRP in both eyes. A financial authorization needed to be obtained for the procedure. The patient wanted to come back when they had a driver present. And instead of two weeks later, they returned two months later. So at that point, PRP number one was initiated in the right eye with left eye scheduled in two weeks. Two weeks was recommended. The patient returned in 10 months. So at that point, panretinal photocoagulation was able to be initiated in the left eye. Uh, further progression of neovascularization elsewhere is noted. And uh, even despite a pretty good pattern of PRP, uh, the patient continued to progress and anti-VEGF was recommended for their PR. Um, so again, a four-week follow-up was recommended, and the patient comes back at two months, advised to have bilateral bevacizumab injections, um, and that was pending the financial authorization. So after single bevacizumab in both eyes, with recommendation to follow up in a month, the patient comes back in two years, and that's when I finally met her. Now, keep in mind, all this while, there's a global pandemic going on, which certainly did not help the cause for uh, adherence to follow-up recommendations. So we can see in the left eye, a pretty ultra-wide-field photograph, a pretty decent pattern of panrenal photocoagulation. You can see some regression of the fibrovascular proliferation, perhaps the hyaloid adherence um, just temporal to the macula there, but a retained foveal contour, and she's still maintaining her 2020 vision. 
However, the right eye looked like this when I first met her. Vision has decreased to 20 over 400. She's actually developing a sensory exotropia in this eye. And this is an eye that we're planning on doing surgery on um, next week, in fact. You can see subretinal fluid through the macula, extensive fibrous proliferation despite laser. So these patients need follow-up and close follow-up despite PRP placement uh, because of the risk of progression. So some of the discussion points and things that made me think about this case, this patient was a patient who had, how do you manage treatments requiring authorization, other factors preventing same-day treatment? Maybe the patient wanted to have a ride and wanted to come back. Again, we talked about the global pandemic going on, perhaps limiting patient access. Um, how do you manage care when patients are unable to maintain their follow-up schedule? And this is a patient who actually had insurance and was in front of a retina specialist as they should have been. Uh, so these are some of the dilemmas in care that we face, particularly diabetic patients. Um, we haven't touched on the other comorbidities that these patients have. They can have all the well, you can be plugged into the system, have very well-meaning intentions for follow-up. We're doing all the right things, but if they get sick for another reason, renal dialysis, other problems, uh, comorbidities land them in the hospital, that can interfere with close adherence to eye care. So just some of the dilemmas we need to think about when we care for these patients. Great case, Adrian. Uh, do you know, like when you have a patient in front of you, whether that patient is gonna be a compliant patient or those that might have some adherence problems? It's, it's very tricky to say, you know, one of the things that I think strikes me about this patient is sometimes when we're young, we don't necessarily um, think that we're at risk. We think that maybe there'll be another time to follow up. Um, maybe we don't adhere stri strongly. We know that maybe elderly patients are a little bit more compliant with, um, with treatment recommendations. The other factor that I think we need to uh, be clear upon that we see with our diabetic patients is that when you have medical insurance linked to employment, that oftentimes is a detriment to these patients because if they lose their insurance, um, they lose their ability to get in front of you for their care. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a real heartbreaking situation when, you know, this particular patient actually, she had insurance but had a lapse in her employment and ended up having, uh, being unable to afford insulin and just was taking metformin um, during some period of time during all this. So, so it's definitely a challenge in this case. It's hard to know who's going to be adherent to recommendation and who isn't, but you can hear just a, several things just in this particular case that illustrates the barriers to, to adherence um, in these particular patients with diabetes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even, uh, even in patients with uh, insurance, as you said, uh, sometimes they don't show up when, when they, you know, stop working or, uh, or they're, you know, uh, other issues and comorbidities. Um, many of them have other things going on, right? Um, so uh, I've had lots of patients, you know, especially during pandemic, where we weren't seeing them. And then they come in, uh, uh, with more advanced diseases, as you said. Rishi, uh, you're a president of a healthcare system. How, how, how burdensome is uh, prior authorization for you? And how do you manage some of this? Yeah, it's a complicated scenario, especially given the landscape in which we take care of patients. You know, we have to, um, with especially these these high-priced biologics and not even ophthalmology, rheumatology, cancer, uh, authorizations are a real burden to their practice. And so we've had to centralize this. Thank we have a good system now that's been managed centrally for us from the entire Cleveland Clinic system and does quite well with it. But it still requires paperwork, unfortunately, still in this day and age, because a lot of these insurance companies don't have electronic authorization systems. And so we're very, very, um, it's very difficult to do so. But thankfully, we have a better system than most, I think, in doing this. Excellent. This is our last case uh, uh, that we will go over. 47-year-old um, woman, a Black woman with a type 2 diabetes mellus for 12 years, but it's poorly controlled. Uh, yes, I tend to see lots of patients with poorly controlled diabetes. A1C is 14, uh, no money to buy medication um, um, at times, two part-time jobs for no medical insurance, had a retinal exam three years ago at her PCP office, but it was with direct ophthalmoscope and hasn't had any since. And uh, she's experiencing gradual decline in vision in the right eye. She thought she needed glasses, so she didn't really a follow-up. But then she had a sudden loss of vision in the left eye with floaters. When we saw her vision was 2025 in the right, 2100 in the left, and this is what we saw. 
on the ultra wide field fluorescent angiogram, you see that there is all these proliferative changes going on. Um, uh, interestingly, not as much in the uh, back part of the eye, the, the posterior segment. Uh, and the left eye, there was a subhyaloid hemorrhage and some vitreous hemorrhage as well. That's why her vision went down suddenly and she still um, um, floaters as well. So this is patient with bilateral um, proliferative diabetinopathy. Um, Adrian, how uh, do you treat patients with PDR um, now, especially when you're somewhat worried about uh, adherence or follow-up? Yeah, I, I will discuss the various treatment modalities. So for example, anti-VEGF, we know is shown to be non-inferior to panretinal photocoagulation. Um, but I, I, if I'm worried about that patient coming back, I will try to initiate prompt PRP. I just feel like it is the you know, most durable, most cost-effective way of potentially keeping these patients from progressing. You know, with my case, even despite PRP, they can still progress. But I think just given the barriers to appointment adherence, um, panorental photoagulation is definitely um, something we should consider in patients with issues with follow-up for whatever reason. Do you try to do uh, uh, any patient on the same day when you see the patient or do you schedule it? Or do you uh, vary it depending on the ethnicity or, or the race of the patient? Yeah, we'll try to schedule it. I mean, I think usually if you tell a patient they need the procedure, they'll start thinking, okay, I need a ride or I'm driving myself today. I can't have this or I've got to get back to work or take time off, et cetera. So I think it's reasonable to try to get a patient, um, give them time to get their head around what you told them and schedule the procedure. But this is a scenario I think that we can perhaps figure out a better system to uh, monitor those patients and try to remember those that potentially could be lost to follow up. I mean, how many times have we seen a patient that we recommend come back in two weeks and we turn around with our busy practices and we look up and it's a year later and you're like, oh goodness, they slipped right through the cracks and then the disease has progressed. So I, I think there is some opportunity that we can catch these patients that are lost to follow up and us reaching out to them and making sure they don't get a barrier in trying to even get scheduled in our offices for these treatment is for these treatments is important. Yeah. Um, if, if, I, if I have a patient who already uh, has uh, poor vision, uh, advanced disease in one eye, despite PRP, um, that other patient, when you know, the second eye, when they come in, I probably will just do it at the same day. <laughs> and also when I'm operating on one eye for a PDR, uh, then I tend to uh, laser the second eye uh, under anesthesia at the same time too. I, I I try to do both as much as possible if, if, if uh, the patients agree, uh, just because I'm concerned about the, the adherence follow-up. I'm, I'm with you, Judy. I, I think that um, I don't tend to do the PRP on the same day as a patient visit. It just becomes too complicated. I want them to think about what we're doing. And anti-VEGF is a good option for temporizing them, at least for the initial parts. And then if they're truly non-adherent to therapy and to care, I do do a laser and anesthesia as you're describing as well. I think it's an easy way to do it. It's less uh, abusive for them. They feel like they're actually um, able to do it without much difficulty and typically do a full setting of PRP and in, in the uh, operating room, which uh, obviously sometimes you consider a waste of resources, but actually I think it's a more efficient way of doing it because you'll get one single sitting potentially with all of the 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 therapy you're looking to, to put into the patient. So I think it's a good way of doing it if you were trying to do that method. Yeah. Well, Rishi, um, again, something about uh, healthcare here. How do you manage patients with that insurance if they want to come to see you? Yeah, so it's tough. Um, you know, I think initially we do uh, have patient assistance programs even within our university that apply to patients. Um, there's also uh, places that they can go, even that they don't go to our facility, but we can refer them to. Uh, in my local area here in, in Florida now, there's a place called Volunteers in Medicine, which do all different types of medical care, and it's all uh, free of charge. And they, they have very decent budgets from philanthropy and other ways to do this sort of thing. We also have philanthropic dollars to pay for some of those patients that come to us as well and provide free services to them. Um, ultimately, you know, I we encourage them to get on the the... Affordable Care Act website and get insurance. Uh, there, it's available for all. It's it's something they can get. Uh, some of these end up being pre-existing conditions, unfortunately, as we just talked about. So now, 
you know, that certainly impacts their ability to get their insurance claims and everything else. But we do, we do have people that, you know, kind of do that. And then lastly, we have copay assistance, copay insurance programs from companies that help us a ton. And, you know, the problem with those is that they're great, but they run out as the year goes on. Right. So I, I, you know, we already have some assistance for people with that insurance. So, you know, having no insurance should not preclude people from uh, seeing an eye doctor and uh, uh, us as healthcare providers and a healthcare system, we should continue to provide and develop more programs for patients with that insurance. And Adrian, last, you get the last word. Um, how do we uh, uh, have our primary care doctors or endocrinologists, nurses, um, to know the importance of early screening for uh, diabetic retinopathy and how do we uh, best reach out to uh, 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 persons of color uh, that it, uh, you know, a DR screening is important? Yeah, I think this is a challenge because uh, we haven't touched much on health literacy, but that also is at play. And Judy, your case illustrated it well. You know, somebody just thought they needed glasses and had decreased vision and thought they had all the time in the world, but they had something vision threatening um, from, from diabetic retinopathy. So I would start, you know, good communication with primary uh, care providers, endocrinologists. I feel like the patients will go in front of those those care providers, and we really need a good system and an efficient system where our primary care endocrinology family practice doctors can uh, refer easily into the systems where we can get to these patients. And I think that's where, again, you've done amazing work in telehealth. I think those are types of things that can help um, streamline the um, uh, the screening and educate education and help streamline things to get these patients in front of us sooner. Uh, one of the things we're doing in our office and when we start this in Florida is we've actually scheduled patients to come in on Saturdays and on Sundays. Mm -hmm. and there's a technician there to do photographs and an OCT and for me to call them back for the virtual business on Monday. Um, you know, we've learned through the COVID pandemic, most everything imaging wise can be done with a technician examination, OCT and, and a fundus photograph. And we can bill for each of those individual components and then do a virtual visit with them following the subsequent that um, visit with us. And so it's a way of using our offices, you know, seven days a week and at the same time offering flexibility for those people that want to come in and, and, and be seen on a weekend and not, not interrupt their work week, which I think is a problem for a lot of these individuals. Yeah, people with diabetes, many of them, you know, have part-time jobs where they're working or, you know, like my patient here, uh, several jobs. Um, so having that flexibility uh, to uh, go see an eye doctor at uh, different times, evenings or weekends, just as you're providing, I think that's really important as well. Thank you so much, all of you. This has been an amazing uh, program uh, with uh, all of your knowledge. And uh, we uh, encourage all the audience to continue to uh, work with us on um, um, uh, demolishing health disparity that we are experiencing in all fronts. And uh, we want to uh, thank Evolve Medical Education for um, uh, doing this program for us. Thank you all. Have a great evening.